Most normal people have a hat stand or a table to put their letters. My parents have bags of basmati rice in case there is a famine in Birmingham. <laughs> if there are ever floods in Birmingham, that house is going to fluff up and burst. <laughs> Today we're having a laugh with some very funny women. Stand-up comedian Shazia Mirza. I just wanted chaos. I just thought this was so exciting and I knew I was at the centre of it. Writer, comedian, co-founder of the Women's Equality Party and host of hugely popular BBC chat show QI, Sandy Toxvig. My sister and I do this thing and it makes me laugh every single time. If I phone her when she answers the phone, I always go, what? <laughs> she does it to me and we yeah. do it every single time and it always makes both of us laugh. Yeah. Yes. And she'll go, you phoned me. And I go, oh yes, sorry, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? oh, yeah. <laughs> and last but not least, today's fantastic co-host, comedian and writer Sarah Pascoe. Oh, and an unexpected guest. Sorry, the dog's, the dog's having fun. What's the, what's the dog called? His name's Mouse. I feel that Mouse is part of the podcast. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. I'm Polly Russell, and I can't wait to get out of the way and kick off this episode of Unfinished Business, a podcast from the British Library. Throughout this podcast series, I've been delving into subjects and themes that are explored in an exhibition at the British Library. The show's all about the history of women's rights, and so I've had some fascinating conversations about everything from cycling to domestic violence to beauty to pleasure. A theme that runs through the exhibition is voice and how women have been historically silenced. Also, a theme that's run through the exhibition is how women have refused to be silenced, how they have been loud, they have been funny, they have taken up space. Nevertheless, there have been attempts to silence them throughout time, whether we're talking about there being fewer female than male MPs in the UK, female writers throughout history having to adopt male pseudonyms to get published, or women who speak out online being trolled and abused, far more, it seems, than men. There is a clear trend. So today, I want to hear from some women who stand on stage and command attention. I want to know what challenges they face, how the comedy scene has changed over time and what still needs to be done. The live comedy scene is really improving. There are a lot more women in it and having a much better time, but it's still not perfect. Some people still feel unwelcome and that needs to improve. My name is Sarah Pascoe and I have unfinished business. I am thrilled to be joined by Sarah Pascoe because she's not only a hilarious comic, having performed sold-out gigs and appeared on countless TV shows, but as a writer and a podcast host, she tackles the biggest issues head-on. Her first book, Animal, the Autobiography of a Female Body, looks at how the female body has been discussed, fetishised and misunderstood throughout history. And her 2019 book and podcast series, Sex, Power, Money, explores sexual relations with a particular focus on male sexuality and on sex work. But let's take things back a bit. I was curious to find out when she realised she was funny. As an experiment, I'd, I'd been in a, like a sketch show and one of the other people in the sketch show was a stand-up comedian and I'd been to see him doing a gig. And rather than what I thought stand-up comedy was, which was 
I thought people were improvising. I thought they were just geniuses and they spoke for two hours and they remembered what they said earlier and they could kind of refer back to it and everyone would clap. What this gig was, was 12 men, all of them quite skinny and anoraks, holding pads, talking about ideas. And that was suddenly very achievable for me. And then I wrote five minutes about how High School the Musical was unrealistic for um, young people. And I wrote a version of Secondary School the Musical about my school. And then that's what I did for my first set. And I got very drunk beforehand. I drank two large glasses of wine. And I kept thinking, I can't imagine doing it. Like, I can't imagine someone saying my name and me just walking on stage and doing it. And then, you know, suddenly it does happen. They say your name and you just walk up there and then it's kind of done. And um, so I didn't have a storming gig or anything. But when you do something that scares you, you get a lot of um, neurochemical rewards. And so afterwards, I walked out and I've never, ever felt like this from anything ever again. But I literally <laughs> felt like I was bulletproof. And I really did, was completely sure, oh, I found what I'm supposed to do. It's that. And when you're there and it's going well and everyone is listening to you and you've, you're holding them, does that feel like a very powerful... Do you feel powerful in that moment? I feel very lucky. And I think it really, for me, it really taps into when you're a toddler, like a three or four-year-old, and you walk into a room and everyone's like, oh, my God, it's you! And you're like, yes, it's me! And that, and so that, and that feels like such a special thing. Like being applauded when you turn up for work is crazy. Now imagine if you walked into an office at night and everyone's like, "Oh my God, yeah, Alan's here. Hello, Alan. Oh, hello, Mousy. And Mouse thinks I'm clapping him. Are you a good boy? Are you a good boy? Um, I don't ever really get used to that or take that for granted. When we calmed down a bit, the conversation moved on to the inevitable. What's it like being a female comic in a very male-dominated scene? Some people who might talk about sexism in comedy, as in, is it harder or are people less receptive to a woman? That's no different to a woman speaking in general. So I think you could align it with politicians, for instance. Do we have a, a strict idea of how a woman should behave, what she should talk about, how she should dress, how she should... her do, general deportment? And I think a lot of women in, in lots of spheres would say... Oh, I've also got, always got a thing in the back of my head. Mm. If I want to get ahead, I have to do certain things. And I think it's such a shame. And it obviously isn't just women, but that anyone has to have a framework in the back of their head about that limits their creativity or limits, limits their anarchism, if you like. There's a really fantastic book um, by Virginie uh, Despantes called The King Kong Theory. And she talks for a while in it about something that I think is so groundbreaking, which is about your right to be ugly as a woman because actually she feels that ugliness and unattractiveness is the, the biggest kind of F you to the patriarchy, because she says that there are, there are spaces that women can take up, but only if you kind of toe the party line, and that includes, and it isn't about necessarily be, being beautiful, but looking like you've tried, as in you've groomed yourself, you're playing the game. And there was something I found so exciting about that because it also really scared me. Like, what would happen if I turned up to a panel show, even a panel show like QI, which is hosted by Sandy, who we're going to be talking to, and I said, by the way, I haven't plucked my moustache, I'm not washing my hair, and I'm not putting on a flowery dress. I'm going to sit here in a, in a white shirt like a man would. And I don't think I'd get rebooked. Yeah, and it would take some gumption, wouldn't it? It would take some gumption because we would. spend our lives putting on a particular sort of performance. That's it, and we absorb it, and then we don't question it, because it's easy, isn't it? Or we tell ourselves, 
oh, I want to wash my hair or shave my armpits. Or, and sometimes we genuinely do, but it's because very rarely do we actually get the opportunity to go, what do you want then? As Sarah mentioned, next up, we're joined by a great of the comedy world, Sandy Toxfig. In case you haven't been on the planet Earth in the last 20 years and don't know anything about her, Sandy is a British-Danish writer, comedian and broadcaster. If that's not enough, she also was one of the founders of the Women's Equality Party and she co-presented national treasure of a show, The Great British Bake Off, from 2017 to 2020. So Sandy ended our video call and was met by Mouse. Oh, I, Hi, for some okay. reason, I thought it was a hand puppet and not a dog, and uh, yeah. <laughs> I thought we were doing a different kind of show entirely. <laughs> I realised that while I know you've been doing comedy a long time... I'm terribly I old, darling, terribly yeah. old. <laughs> but I, uh, so did you always want to be a comedian? Are you one of those people? Oh, God almighty, I didn't even know it was a thing. And, in fact, when yeah. people say that about me, I'm always slightly surprised because they never mm. think I say funny things, I just say what I think, and then, oddly, yeah. people laugh at it. So I, I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. Um, so oh, did you? Yeah, I trained as a lawyer yes. at, uh, at university. And I was in, there's a thing at Cambridge called the Footlights. I was in a thing called the Footlights. And I was in yeah. that as well as doing my law degree. And mm. a, a professional director saw me in it and said, would you like to come and be in a show after university? And I thought, oh, I'll have a gap year after university as well as before. What a marvellous yeah. thing. And I'm just yeah. having the longest gap year in history. But yeah. uh, I had no intention of doing what I do. I'm always surprised when people write comedian. I've written, I don't know, 26 or 27 books now. And yeah. nobody ever puts author. And you think, how many are you yeah. supposed to write before? <laughs> Before you yes. get to be called an author. Okay, well, we know that um, Polly from the, the interviewed me at the beginning is listening, so we'll make sure that we, <laughs> on the podcast, is Sandy Toxbig author. Author, broadcaster, which sounds very um, sensible. So I wanted to ask you a question. At what point in your career did somebody first ask you about being a woman? And you know the kind of question I mean. Constantly, darling. It just became sort of tiring after a while. I think yeah. the worst example of that was Have I Got News For You, which is... 1990 it started they did two pilots one with me and one with Angus Dayton and they said to me completely straightforwardly we much preferred yours Sandy but the BBC don't feel a woman can be in charge of making fun of the news mm. and I just took it all right that's the 30 years ago it's a very interesting thing to, I think, focus upon for a second is that people always assume sexism comes from an audience and quite often it doesn't. It comes from the gatekeepers. It's something that still happens around panel shows, some particular panel shows, uh, and the channel, I think, has tried to improve. They predict what an audience will and will not take or not enjoy, and it's based on their biases. But it's, it's absolute madness. I mean, we've increased on a show that I host called QI, we've increased mm. the number of women participants enormously. And um, and our viewing figures have gone up. So Yeah, they, they would tell you that your average person, they will not be able to listen to women talking. <laughs> like they won't. And it was it was, you know, adult men saying that it wasn't viewers at home saying I'll, t I'll throw my television out of the window if there's more than one no or you know I don't know what the fear was that our cycles would collide and we'd be unable to focus mm. I don't know what the problem was but I've, yes. I've also heard you know that I'd be up for a job and they and they and they were looking sort of for five comedians and then they'd go oh we've already got a woman oh well done yes. and so that's that's yes. that box well, that still, it still happens. I mean, it still occasionally happens to women, but it also happens to gay people and it's happening to people of colour all of the time. Yeah, disabled people. Yes. We kid ourselves if we think we're done. I mean, I, apart from myself hosting QI, I don't, I'm trying to think of another woman who hosts a big primetime 
show yeah. and I'm going to tell you a secret I think it's not that difficult it's th- mm. because they tell you the answers beforehand it's not <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. and the cards with the questions on they're not as heavy as I was led to believe so, uh, <laughs> and you get a cushion on your chair Sandy <laughs> I you know I have a cushion on my chair yeah. well I the first three years I had Stephen's chair because they didn't want to invest in a whole chair for me and it was it was completely wrong size for me I had to climb up on a little box to get onto the chair and I now, and I think this is a sign that I've arrived five years in, I have my own chair. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, that is. They've decided you can stay. Okay, let's invest in a chair. <laughs> let's get the woman a chair. <laughs> so in terms of that, in terms of being asked questions about being a woman in comedy, something that I have really struggled with is that the person asking the question, I often find that they're being quite rude but as if it's on behalf of somebody else. A journalist in Edinburgh for a a major newspaper, a proper newspaper, you'd think, will then say, what do you say to people who say, you can't do your job because you're a woman? And they think, well, well, excuse me, who are those people? Is that you? Do you think I can't do my job? Who's been shouting at you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time and, and you'd think it would go away. You know, what do you say to people who say women can't be funny? Um, mm. I, I, I don't no, know. I, what to say. I don't know what to say. Apart from stand up. His, I was, the test that I always suggest is go to any public function and spend a short time standing outside the gents as the door opens and closes. And all you'll hear is the sound of running water. Stand outside the ladies as the door opens and closes and you will hear laughter. Yeah, guffaws of laughter. That's true. Women just find life naturally funny. Yeah, I am. Um, I think it's really good that you even have an answer. Lots of people that I know, including myself, we say that we won't answer the question because after you've answered the question earnestly a couple of times and not been funny, it feels almost like you're working against yourself. That every interview you're reinforcing a stereotype you don't agree with. And my entire job and the fact that I bought a flat disproves. Like, and 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 all of all of my colleagues are women who are flourishing. So. I'm the worst person to ask about this. Go and ask somebody who thinks that. But women doing comedy isn't, of course, a new thing. Women have always been funny and they've always been entertaining, despite some bad PR. I'm the idol of the girls, sung by Miss Vesta Tilly, Edison Records. Indeed, in the exhibition, we feature a woman called Vesta Tilly, who was incredibly famous in the early 20th century as a music hall artist known for dressing up as a man. There's no resisting me when I'm above. In my dress, I study, detail everything. Sandy, too, celebrates female comics of the past. You mustn't forget about people like Jane Fool, who was an, uh, an English court jester, Certainly the jester to, to Catherine Parr and Mary I, and possibly also to Anne Boleyn. Uh, so mm. we're talking about the middle part of the 16th century. It is not a new thing, women making people laugh. And certainly, I rather imagine, around the fire in the cave, uh, women were yeah. crying with laughter. I mean, one of the things we now know, yeah. we look at a lot of the, the art, for example, of the cave paintings, and we look at the mm. handprints and so on. And the new theory is a lot of it was done by women, and the presumption was that cavemen came back from a bit of bison hunting and had plenty of time to do art. Yes. And probably it was women, actually, because who else has got yes. the time? And it's one of the things that changed my life. I, did, I also studied anthropology at university, mm. and there was a wonderful a woman called Dr. Deborah Swallow. I think she then ran the Courtauld Institute, and she talked to us about the Ashango bone. Do you know about the Ashango bone? No. So the Shango bone, it's uh, from uh, so Upper Paleolithic and uh, it's got markings on it. It's a tally stick. 
And so this was, lots of people said, this is a man's first attempt at a lunar calendar. Mm. And, and she said, what man in the world would have wanted to mark out a lunar calendar? Surely <laughs> this is woman's first attempt at a lunar calendar. But of course the presumption has been that man somehow wanted to control the thing and it's clearly a woman trying to sort out her cycles. She's clearly going scratch, scratch, scratch. Oh, it'll be yeah. tomorrow, you know, because she's running around and she's trying to look after the children, she's got stuff to do. But it totally changed my life in terms of questioning the answers that you've been given, mm. particularly in relation to gender and how we treat each other. Sandy is passionate about drawing attention to women and their achievements that have been overlooked throughout history. Her recently published book, Toxvig's Almanac 2021, an eclectic meander through the historical year, features fascinating figures from history, such as revolutionary women, to serial killers, pirate nuns, to pioneering civil rights activists, doctors, to dancing girls. Sarah's a big fan. It's so much fun to read. I'm imagining you sitting there in your house with a smile on your face and an encyclopedia open. Well, uh, the, the, the thing is that I needed a minimum of 365 women. And the, the, the heartbreaking bit about this book is the women I left out. So, so in a way, it's, the, it's scratching the surface. So, for example, there's an incredible uh, Japanese suffragette called Kamoko Kimaro. And I think many people will not have heard of her. She was mm. astonishing and she went to America and we're talking about um, the early part of the 20th century. She went to the United States and marched with the suffragettes there and, and learned from them. And I think we forget um, when we look at the history of, of people battling for women's rights, we forget how worldwide it was. And what I hope is that you might read about Kamako and then go and look her up because I couldn't possibly do justice to her story yes. in the little entry yes. that I put in about her. Uh, I think one of the more shocking ones is uh, is Donna Strickland. So Donna Strickland's a phenomenal Canadian physicist. And people kept trying to put up a page on Wikipedia about her and kept mm. being told she wasn't notable enough. Uh, and this wow. is, there's a real issue. And do you know what day her page went up? The day she won the Nobel Prize. Oh, my god! So that's what it takes. That's what it takes. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter if it's sport or physics or whatever the thing is. Um, yeah. There's a story where you just go, that's extraordinary. People want to hear that things are getting better for women in comedy. They want to hear that there's a narrative of it's much easier now, or there are, if there were sexisms 15 years ago in the clubs, they're not there anymore. The reason I feel wary of that question is it's really dangerous to ask the victors, oh, is the world fair? Because <laughs> they will tell you it is. It so isn't, darling. And I still meet young female comics who are really struggling and struggling to get proper representation yeah. and struggling to... Yes. What seems so ridiculous now is when the Comedy Store started, um, so, so I was there on the very first night in 1980, mm. I think it was. Wow. Uh, I performed, and um, so the, it used to be in uh, Leicester Square, and it wasn't possible to go to the loo uh, during mm. the show because it was you had to go through the audience to get to the loo. So there was a basin in the corner, and it was thought to be fine because the boys all just weed in the basin. Well, obviously, that was tricky, and I'm not exaggerating. Josie Lawrence, with whom I was in the Comedy Store Players for many, many years, she used to have mm. to lift me up to wee in the sink. <laughs> and it's yeah. how many women are going to put up with that stuff yeah, in order to carry on with it. Nobody thought anything of it. It was fine for the boys. This is not OK. Yeah. 
Well, um, in the whole of London, until there were Lyons tea houses, there was nowhere that women could go to the toilet. The reason that women went to visit each other was that then they could, if they could have a cup of tea, because there would be a bathroom they could use. Okay, so during lockdown, my wife and I had what we called bladder limits. So we would go bicycling. Um, but we had to come back at least within a two-hour window because that was my bladder limit. And I went yeah. out and I bought, right? This is a yes. thing you can buy. It's a pop-up toilet tent. And it's it's about the size, when it pops up, it's about the size of a telephone booth. And then a collapsible toilet. And we carried this in the boot of the car and <laughs> have put it up on a lay-by and gone in, had a way into a plastic yeah. bag and then taken it away, <laughs> a bag full of we in the back of the car. It, it, it is a serious issue. Uh, women is being able to go issue. to the toilet yeah. is a serious issue. Well, it's a serious issue and it connects actually very well to period poverty, which is something that we know that with people are talking about a lot more now. But for years, no one talked about that girls all over the world, including our country, don't go to school when they're menstruating because they'll bleed through their uniform or um, onto chairs or because they, they simply it's expensive because our country also at that time also had that the the VAT the tax as luxury items but also that period products are so expensive even though again it happens to half of people well I'll give you an idea of a joke that I got into terrible trouble for I was once doing a okay. time team which was a channel Four archaeological program uh, and it was live I met some uh, some midden some ancient uh, rubbish heap in York and uh, the very solemn archaeologist takes out this large piece of moss and says uh, this would have been used by women uh, for their monthlies. This is, you know, and, wow. then th and then thrown away. And I said, oh, Tudor period. Um, and I thought it was quite funny. Um, yes, very funny. I got into terrible trouble. I got the producer was furious. They didn't want me to be in any more scenes. They, they, how dare you? And uh, it's like, don't you know, it's live television. And I thought, oh, oh my, my God, gosh. all I said was yes. Tudor period. That's not a rude term no. for. Your menses, yeah. I was shunned at lunch. Shunned. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, I, th I think it's so important for, I mean, anything that makes people feel unnecessary shame to be talked about. And so the effect, not only that you can't say the word period, as also as part of a kind of flippant joke, you won't go, OK, let me talk to you about clotting. You weren't trying to put anyone off their sandwiches. You were just using the word period. I'm glad that you said it. I'm glad that someone was there to say it and I'm glad now because lots of period adverts now don't have the little blue liquid anymore there are companies now who actually use red liquid and actually demonstrate what their product does and all of those kind of things are better yeah I didn't know it was supposed to be red mine is blue and that was very worrying <laughs> oh my goodness. it must be like a Danish thing it's a Danish thing we yeah it's a Danish thing it's all very clean it's just different it's just because our society is happier we don't need to bleed red sorry <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that's brilliant about having someone like you be very funny alongside important activism and political work is that being humorless has often been weaponized against women who try to do anything. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the doer feminist uh, mm. who hasn't shaved her legs and has an uncontrollable bush, that kind of thing. And I just, <laughs> I just think... That's just a way of having another go, isn't it? That's mm. just that, yeah. that somehow we're just being grumpy about the yeah. crazy idea that we like the same pay. This is yeah. madness. So in terms of the future, 
Our conversation, as short as it was, I think we have reflected how much unfinished business there is. For anybody listening, especially if they're interested in comedy, what should we be doing? Well, I mean, there's just so much to be done. And uh, my biggest concern is that uh, COVID is definitely going to have a disproportionate impact on women. Um, more women uh, do the care in this country, around the world, in fact. More women Mm. do unpaid work, more women work in the informal market. Obviously, I'm going to tell you that uh, I'd like everybody, boys and girls, because equality is better for everybody. It isn't a a thing where it's just better for women. It's better for for my Mm. son as well as for my daughters. I'd like everybody to join the Women's Equality Party. In a sort of strange way, it's a non-political political political party. I don't care if you're from Mm. the left or from the right or whatever. Um, Join us because there's going to be so much work to be done. But then rather than being inactive and thinking, oh, no, it's all terrible. You know, I co-founded a political party with Catherine Mayer and Mm. uh, and we're we're busy doing it. an extremely successful uh, general election. We could only afford to stand five candidates. We stood against five men, uh, all of whom had outstanding allegations of sexual harassment or impropriety, and four of them stood down and one of them lost his seat. Those five men are no longer in Mm. Parliament. So please know that even if it's a quiet thing, that's a triumph. So, of course, what I would say is we can Mm. all do something. Go to the exhibition and be fired up. Extend your knowledge uh, and realise how astonishing and wonderful the contribution of women is uh, to the world. Hey, that's so perfect because what you've just put so succinctly is that being funny doesn't mean that we're never serious and being serious things needing to happen and serious things that happen in the world doesn't mean we never laugh. So that's a perfect place to leave it. That's why I love you so much. I think you're so bloody brilliant. You just nailed both sides of things. I think you're terrific. Well, I think you're terrific. And I think that then anyone listening, they're perfect things. Join the Women's Equality Party. Go to the exhibition when you can go to exhibitions again. And also um, enjoy your book. I'm holding it up to you, even though you know what it looks like. (laughs) Toxfix Almanac. Make sure you buy that. Thank you so much, Sandy. Right, I've got to join the love in too, because I adore Sarah and Sandy. And I adore them because... Not only are they hilariously funny and entertaining, you know, my cheeks are actually aching from laughing, but I also adore them because they are also serious. Sarah's books, her podcasts, her series, they deal with really important issues. Sandy, one of the funniest women alive, she set up a political party. That's very serious. It was fantastic to hear them in conversation. After Sandy left the call, I asked Sarah how she felt about their chat. What I really loved that kept being reinforced was that individuals are so powerful and we're often made to feel very powerless. And actually that really does link in with talking about women who want to represent themselves in male-dominated fields, is that the reason you think, oh, I shouldn't be there, it's mostly men, is the reason you have to be there. It's why it's so important, whether that's comedy or anything else. And this rings especially true for our next guest, Shazia Mirza. Shazia's an award-winning stand-up comedian and a writer from Birmingham. The thing is, white men think they're the masters of the universe. And all of a sudden, all their rights have been taken away by gay people, black people, Muslims, women, Jews, immigrants. You know what I do now? I say, I get on the bus and I go, Oi, Dave, get out of that seat. Move to the back of the bus. Rosa's back. The last time I gigged with Shazia um, was in Edinburgh and it was a gig where I was hosting and um, lots of acts were doing five minutes and the gig had been so hard. 
no, no one had done very well, including myself. And then Shazia came at the end and was absolutely just so phenomenally brilliant and funny. And I was watching her from backstage going, okay, that's how you do it. So I think of Shazia as such a, not that she's old, but like an elder statesman of comedy. She's done everything. She's done all of the hard gigs. And so I'm really interested to hear about her journey into comedy and what she thinks about it now and if she's happy with what she's doing. Hello, mate. Hello. Hi. So, Shazia, do you come from a funny family? Did you have lots of laughs growing up? Um, no. My parents are not funny people at all. But there was a lot of comedy in the house. We were always watching sitcoms. Like, there was always Are You Being Served, The Two Ronnies, The Liver Birds, but there were not funny people in the house. And does that include you? I mean, did you, were you a funny at school? I mean, I, I wasn't funny. I was an attention seeker. I was always doing right. naughty things. I'd ask the teacher if I could go to the toilet 10 minutes before the end of the lesson and then I'd go and hide everybody's coat. <laughs> Um, I'd go and hide them in the toilet or I'd hide them behind the tennis courts. And, yeah. and then when the bell would go, everybody would be screaming for their coat. There'd be all these kids crying, going to the school gates. And it was me yeah. causing chaos. <laughs> I just wanted chaos. I just thought this was so exciting and I knew I was at the centre of it. That comfortableness or the seeking of like being the centre of attention... <laughs> Was there a natural segue for you from that into performing? No, there was no way that somebody like me in my situation and my background was ever going to yeah. be a stand-up comedian. You know, the people I mm -hmm. saw doing comedy were white men. And I, and I never knew what a stand-up comedian was. I'd never been to a comedy club in my life till I started stand-up. Yeah. So what was the journey into stand-up then? Because that's fascinating as a starting point of, of thinking, oh, that's something that white men do. I just thought, I loved comedy. I love writing. I'll just go and do a comedy course about how mm. to write comedy. And on the course, one of the first things the teacher said was, I want you to write some material that's personal, that's truthful. So I wrote some material about how I hated having a moustache. <laughs> I've tried to shave it, pluck it, everything. I bleached it, it's gone blonde. And that's how it started. I stood up in front of the class, I said the stuff, and everybody started laughing. And the teacher said, yeah. you need to go out on the comedy circuit and perform this. And I just thought, no way, I'm not doing that. But that was yeah. the beginning of it. When I was growing up as a girl, I never had a voice. I have three brothers. Yeah. And I was always told as a, as a girl, as a woman, you should not speak up in front of a room full of people because you'll never get married. Nobody will want to marry you. No man wants a woman who's um, outspoken and loud. Yeah. And actually, I found that now to be true. Uh, <laughs> My mother was right, actually. She didn't always talk shit, but actually she was right. Um, I was used to also, when I started comedy, I used to have a lot of people email me, say, uh, this is not the right thing for a Muslim woman to be doing. It's comedy. This is oh, wow. not the thing for you. Yes. So it kind of reinforced what I'd grown up with. And so I always felt a bit, not guilty, but I felt, you know, maybe I'm not doing the right thing. That must have been so hard because 
You've got that coming in two directions, it sounds like. Your gigs are going great, but you've got this from childhood message that women aren't supposed to be the centre of attention. And then I can't believe that people would message someone they don't know and say, because you're Muslim, you shouldn't be doing this. That must have been such a heavy thing for you to bear, even if you disagreed. Well, I had a lot worse than that. I mean, I used to get death threats. I used to get hate mail. I used to get a lot. And it wasn't because of the comedy, because a lot of these people had never watched my comedy or yeah. they'd never seen comedy in itself. They just saw me on stage and said, that is wrong. This is not the place for a woman. Right. And actually, people used to stop my parents oh, really? in the street in Birmingham and say, we've seen your daughter on TV doing comedy. And my mum and dad were so embarrassed, they'd say... Oh, no, 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 it's just a hobby. She's going to give it up soon. You know she has a degree in biochemistry, you know. So it sounds like it was quite difficult for your parents. Were they supportive of you and what you were doing? Did they understand why you wanted to do comedy? No, no, they didn't. My parents have never seen me perform, ever. You know, they're from a different generation. They're from a different culture. They're from a different background. And they didn't know anybody that was a stand-up comedian. But then neither did I. Can I ask about the effect? I think most people can't imagine what it would be like to get a death threat because of their job or for being in the public eye. Did it ever make you think about quitting or did it make you want to hide away and be less exposed? I just couldn't understand it. And I was thinking about this the other day that, you know, I, I got hate mail, I got death threats. God, I must really love comedy. <laughs> yeah. I must really love this to have carried on. What was I thinking? People wanted to kill me and I said, no, 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 that's all right, that's all right. I'll go on stage tomorrow night and do the same again. <laughs> because there was nobody like you doing comedy, at the same time as some people were like outraged, unreasonably so, you were probably a much bigger influence than you realise in when people, especially women or women of colour, see people who are like them on stage being brilliant. For them, they haven't just seen white men doing it. They do go, oh, I can, I can do that too. I think that's true, is that in order to be what you want to be, sometimes you have to see it first. I mean, when I was growing up, my dad always used to say, um, hurry up, hurry up, get downstairs. Trevor is on the TV because Trevor MacDonald was the closest thing to an Asian woman at the time. And we used to go, but Daddy's <laughs> black. Yes, but, but, but this is all we've got. This is all we got. This is the closest thing to people that look like us. There was no Asian women on TV. And then years later, when Asian women did start to appear on TV, they were all in a certain role. Newsreaders... They were making documentaries, they were in serious roles, they were commentators. They weren't stand-up comedians. And I think you have to be slightly deluded in comedy. And I think that that's what men have over women. They're thick-skinned, mm. they've got way more confidence. They die on stage and they'll deny it to themselves. They'll go, no, actually, I stormed it, I did really yeah. well. Um, can I ask about the, so those early TV jobs with the people that employed you? So I guess kind of the cast, the people casting for panel shows or producers, directors, 
Did you find them very welcoming? Were they like, oh my God, thank God you're here. We needed someone like you. <laughs> I don't think any direct casting director says that to any comic. Oh, thank God you're here. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, I've been waiting for you for 20 years. Yeah. Where have you been? <laughs> I don't think, I don't think any comic has heard that. The thing is, what happened is, when I started comedy, and 9-11 had happened shortly afterwards, and this often happens oh, with people okay. of colour in every profession, is that they're always looking for a spokesperson. Because as, as we all know, as a Muslim woman, I speak for all Muslim women in Britain. Sure. We all have the same opinion. Everybody, we're all on one big WhatsApp group. We all know what everybody's thinking, what everybody's <laughs> okay. saying and what yeah. everybody's doing yes. at any one time. Yeah. I mean, the number of times I've been mistaken for Nadia and Malala, it's ridiculous. We look nothing like each other, but obviously <laughs> we all know each other. Oh, gosh. Um, but I was, there was too much pressure on me to voice the community if any event had happened that involved Muslims or brown people. All of a sudden, then yeah. I'd be asked to go on a panel show and be funny about this. The other thing that adds, adds into that is that um, in that situation you're describing, for someone like you, there's also no invisibility. Like If you're a white man in a group of six white men and you might have been doing stand-up for six months or a year they can kind of hide while they get stronger and better and find out who they are and learn how to do those shows. Um, anyone yeah. who isn't a, a straight white man can sometimes feel so visible that it feels like you're literally thrown in the deep end with everyone waiting to go, are you going to be good? Because I presume not. Like it's, and that's an added pressure. When people talk about white privilege, I think that this is what it is in a way is that you have the privilege to be who you are. I remember doing mm. a routine once about Primark, going into Primark and dropping my clothes on the floor and kicking shoes under the counter and how I loved doing that and I felt that it was like being in a jumble sale. But yeah. it was about my experience of going to Primark and I remember this white male reviewer yeah. writing a review about me saying, what a waste of a good Muslim. Oh. What a waste of a Muslim woman's voice. There's so much she could have been talking about and she decides to talk about Primark. And I just remember thinking, why do I have to do what you want me to do? The reason I became a comedian and turned my back on my religion and my culture and nobody supported me and I had death threats and hate mail I went through all of this because I wanted to have my own voice. And I come into this industry and now you are telling me what I should be talking about. So Shazia, has it changed or is it the same now? I think because I just carried on regardless and just thought, you know what, mm. I want to do this no amount of criticism or, or hatred or people trying to stop me doing this, I'm going to carry on. Thousands wouldn't have carried on. Well, we've seen this ourselves, not just people of colour, but women who just find this business so difficult and they're great and they're mm. funny, but they don't carry on. And I think because I love this so much and I felt, you know, I, I grew up in a very strict Muslim background my life was planned out for me. I, w I should have been married at 21. I should have carried on living in Birmingham and had a decent, respectable life. 
because I turned my back on all of that and I found something that I loved. This comedy saved me from living a life that I didn't want to live. And I think it's really important for younger women and women that are coming into this business to mm. see that it can be done. Yeah, but, but also a voice. Like what you're describing now is the freedom to self-expression and, and what you've put so beautifully is for some people, they take it for granted because it was always there for them, but you have fought for it. So hopefully other people will see and go, oh, I, I am also, I should be able to express myself. I might not want to be a comedian, but I can talk. Mm. I should be listened to. That in itself yeah. is such a, can be a huge thing if you're told to be quiet. I think women are doing that now, mm. or expressing their voice or saying what they think. Even though, obviously, women get more criticism than men, uh, whatever we say, whatever mm. we only have to open our mouths and we will get criticism. But I think women are braver now because mm -hmm. there's safety in numbers. Blimey, what a hero. What a hero. And um, it, it's really incredible because I've had, I had a very different experience to Shazia, partly because uh, there were already women like her working in comedy who'd been working for a decade in comedy when I started. And also because I'm white. And so I would talk about my stuff about in terms of pressure or what women are supposed to talk about or surprise if there's a woman on the bill, but nothing to the extent. It's so clear she was destined to be a comedian, but her compulsion to be funny and to be looked at and the centre of attention kept her going while every direction was telling her there's a correct yeah. way to be you and that's not it. On top of that, when she says about how many women have quit, that makes me so sad because it's true. And some of the women who I've known who have stopped, it was almost because... The world is a very harsh place and the work they were trying to do was sometimes too exquisite, too precious. And there is no safe space in comedy. You have to be so robust. And what's unfair about that is that we have lost voices. Could you summarise what is still unfinished business for women in comedy and in this, in this space? I, what I would say is uniform, is that anyone who's not being heard from I know they might be fighting or jostling or pushing back like Shazia was describing and actually Sandy did as well in terms of at the very beginning at the comedy store there's not even a toilet. You might have to jostle but please don't think the world doesn't need to hear from you because if we're not hearing from you already, we need you. What you're saying to me is actually like the best of feminism. It's a feminism which is totally inclusive. It's mm. not just about one type of woman. Mm. It's about women, trans women, men, yes. disabled women. You know, it's about changing the world, changing the structures, yeah. changing everything to include everything. Um, and there's always been a good thing in comedy, um, using the phrase, actually going back to what we're talking about, but keeping the door open. Like, if there's a gig that only books men and you happen to be the first woman and you have a good gig and they start booking you, it's actually your responsibility to put a wedge under it and keep <laughs> recommending other women, you know, who'd be great here and this, that, because there can be a temptation sometimes, especially if one has had to work very, very hard to go, well I, well, I made it, so it's possible. And the exact opposite needs to be true all of the time going, it's not a zero-sum game. Wedge the door open for others after you. Yeah, and hey, that's a win-win. Yeah. No one loses in that. Well, that is a win-win. I, I was listening to an interview the other day with a man who started Whole Foods, and it's actually a win-win-win. It's a win for you, a win for me, a win for everyone in society. We should always want it to be three wins. 
Love it. So fantastic hearing from Sarah, Sandy and Shazia and hearing how women won't be silenced, can't be silenced, should never be silenced, which is exactly what we explore in the exhibition at the British Library. I don't know about you, but I have loved this episode. This has been Unfinished Business, a PixU production for the British Library. Thanks to Sarah Pascoe, Sandy Toxvig and Shazia Mirza. And of course, Mouse the Dog. I'll leave you now with a word about the Unfinished Business exhibition from an acclaimed writer. I think the exhibition is so exciting and I'm thrilled to have even had anything to do with it. And I'd have to say that I've written um, 12 books in the library at the British Library. Oh, because you're an author. Because I'm an author. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, Sandy. It's just so brilliant to have you, author Sandy, here with us. It's how we will refer <laughs> to you, prolific author Sandy Toxvig, you may have heard of from her books. 